0: Invite you to take out your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7 and verse 18. And as we read this morning, if you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts, What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon." The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Let's pray. Our great God and Savior, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that you would reveal your glory to us. That we might see your authority and your majesty and that we would bow before you and declare that you are just. We pray that you would open our hearts and our eyes that we might be changed and become like your son in whose name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning for our text, we have 17 verses, (laughs) 17 verses. I I looked online the other day at uh, our old pastor, John MacArthur, and I think it took him about seven or eight weeks to get through this but well, we're going to do it in one, <laughs> Lord willing. And I'm excited about this passage. I think Luke has deliberately put together these three accounts that all relate to John the Baptist, three paragraphs that all work together to point us toward one conclusion, that we must bow before the authority of the, li- the living God. We must bow before the authority of his Messiah. And what we're going to see is that man, in his own wisdom, will always reject God's wisdom. But God's wisdom will be justified. We see in the beginning of verse 18 that the disciples of John go to John and they report to him all the things that have gone on. Most specifically, the healing of the centurion servant and the raising of the widow's son. Apparently, John's disciples were present for those miracles. And when that happened, they took word to John. And they told John what Jesus was doing. You might be surprised by the fact that John's response to that is this question, this doubt this concern that he has, you might be surprised that one as great as John the Baptist, one who declared that the one coming after him is greater than himself, now asks this question. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? John, in fact, was the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was John who said, This is the Lamb of God. Behold, the one who takes away the sin of the world. And yet now, John says, are you the one who is to come? Well, Jesus gives John an answer. But before we look at the answer that Jesus gives to John, let's look at at John's question and what's going on behind John's question because until we understand why his question came about the answer that Jesus gives I don't think will make sense let's look first at point a John seeks confirmation John seeks confirmation or you could say clarification but probably confirmation is better when the disciples reported to John, John's response was, uh, Bring me two disciples. Bring me two. Why two? Because every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. John calls two over to make sure that the report gets to Jesus accurately. And it does. John says, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the disciples arrive to Jesus, what do they say? Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Word for word, verbatim. Very unusual to see two quotes without any variation at all, but that is exactly what they say. The matter is established. Now, remember, way back at the beginning of the book of Luke, who does Luke's narrative begin with? It begins with none other than John the Baptist. A narrative regarding John the Baptist's father, Zechariah. Or uh, Zacharias, who is in the temple offering sacrifices as a priest, and an angel appears to him and says, Your 80, 90 year old wife is going to have a child. Why does that matter? Why does Luke give us that narrative that nobody else does? because John's critical in Luke's narrative. We have to understand who John is, and the angel tells us who he is. He is the one who is to come before the Lord, the one who will prepare the way for the Messiah. If you go back to chapter three, you can hear from John's own lips what he says in verse 16, Well, actually look at verse 15. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So John the prophet says, there's one coming after me, and he is greater than I am. But look at verse 17. When John tells us who's coming, what does John see? His winnowing fork is in his hand. He's about to separate the wheat from the chaff. He is about to gather the wheat into his barn and burn the chaff. So John's expectation is the one who is coming is going to bring division. The one who is coming is going to begin God's judgment on earth. And then look at verse 18. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. And this is where we leave John the Baptist, locked up in prison That is where his disciples go to him. That is from where his disciples come to Jesus, in prison. And John is legitimately confused, legitimately. Let's remind ourselves what the expectation of the Messiah was. It is so hard for us with the New Testament to understand what the people were thinking when Jesus came. We read passages like the disciples, Peter, who takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke Jesus because Jesus said he had to suffer. You remember what Peter said? Lord, nothing like this must happen to you. And we think, What on earth was going on in Peter's mind? What a knucklehead. Wasn't it obvious? So we have to understand what the expectation of the people was as they waited for the Messiah. This tells us why John was confused. This shows us why he needed confirmation from Jesus. Was it a sinful question? Was John wrong to ask the question? Or is it a legitimate, honest question? And I think we'll see which it is. Why was he confused? Turn back to Isaiah chapter 40. Why Isaiah chapter 40? Because it's Isaiah chapter 40 that prophesies John the Baptist. And I have no doubt that John, knowing that he was the messenger, the voice crying out in the wilderness, looked at Isaiah chapter 40. He saw himself in God's word. So look in chapter 40, Isaiah 40, and look at verse 3. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Does that sound familiar? That is about John the Baptist. But continue, Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. What is John preparing? Prepare the way of whom? The Lord. Verse 5, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So the expectation of the Messiah is that when the messenger comes, when the voice in the wilderness cries out, prepare the way of the Lord, who shows up? The Lord shows up. And not to be confused, look down at verse 9. And you know what the message is? Behold your God. This was not just a mere messenger or prophet but who John was foretelling was God himself this is what the expectation of the Messiah was that God would come down and do what look at verse uh, uh, 10 behold the Lord your God comes with might and his arm rules for him behold his reward is with him and his recompense before him What was the expectation of the Messiah coming? What would he do? Well, one of the things that he would do is bring reward and recompense. With the strength or the might of his arm, he would rule. And he would punish those who do evil, and he would reward those who do good. Let's look more in John. If you flip over to chapter 61 a passage which should sound familiar. And I've given you a bunch of other references in the notes you can look up at a later time. In Isaiah chapter 61, this should sound familiar. It's part of the the same discourse from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Who's that? Jesus Christ. Jesus quotes this very passage in Nazareth, in his hometown. But look at the next verse. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. In the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament, we are not told, well, this will happen in the first coming and this will happen in the second. This will happen first and then this and then this and then this. And as the prophets prophesied about what would come, the people were given a single message and they did not know how to sort out one from the other. And John is included Is John right to expect that God will bring judgment on the earth in Messiah? Is John right to expect that he, as a prisoner, will be set free? He is, because that's exactly what God promised. But what God didn't say is just when and how he would do it. Just one more passage I want to consider, and then we'll... Look at Jesus' answer. Flip over to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. This is significant for a number of reasons. First, it is the final prophecy given to Israel before 450 years of silence. This is the last word from the Lord given to Israel. Second, This passage refers to John the Baptist, again. And third, this passage, Jesus quotes in his explanation of who John is. So look at verse 1. behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. So God says, I'm gonna send my messenger, and that messenger, who is John the Baptist, will prepare the way for me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. What's your expectation? Sudden, as soon as this prophet is here and prepares the way before the Lord, the Lord will suddenly appear. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord in the days of old as in the days of old and as in former years. And look at verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Who is John preparing the way for? The Messiah the Lord God himself. And what is the expectation that Messiah will do? He will purify and refine like fire. He will bring justice upon the earth. That was the right Old Testament expectation. There was nothing wrong with John expecting that. The confusion comes When John thinks he knows how and when the Lord will do it. So get this. John, since he baptized Jesus Christ, is arrested and put in prison. And he's sitting there. And he knows Malachi 3. He knows suddenly he's going to appear in the temple. I baptized him. The way must be prepared because he's here. So what do I know is going to happen next? And John probably is thinking something like this. Maybe tomorrow morning, Jesus will come and set me free. He is probably thinking, go ahead and arrest me, Herod, because I know that God will set the prisoners free. And I would not be surprised at all if on day one he thought, this is not going to last long. You can't keep me here long because the Messiah will set us free. And day two comes. And day three. And month two. And month three. And we don't know how much longer he sits in prison. And finally, finally in his in his weakness, but I don't believe sinfulness. He says, I've got to know. I can't figure it out. I know what the Old Testament says, and this doesn't look like it. Maybe I got something wrong. Maybe I misunderstood Scripture. Maybe there's another person involved that I missed from the prophecies of the Old Testament. And so he asks... Are you the one who is to come? Are you the Messiah? Or should we wait for another? And I think John asks, not in sinfulness, but asks in a legitimate confusion. Lord, did I get it wrong? Did I mess something up? And unlike Jesus' response to his disciples such as, get behind me, Satan, and oh, you of little faith, you hard-hearted and stiff-necked people, his response to John the Baptist is gentle, without rebuke. Let's look at his answer. B, Jesus claims authority. Jesus claims authority. Jesus answers John's question, but he does so indirectly. The answer that John would have expected would be, yes, I am the coming one. Or, no, I am not the coming one. And Jesus does not answer that directly. But he answers it nonetheless. Look how he answers it in verse 21. In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind he bestowed sight. So the first thing Luke tells us is what's going on while the disciples of John come to Jesus. All these miracles are going on. People are being healed. Plagues, evil spirits are being banished. Blind were receiving sight. And then Jesus answered, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear." The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. So what's his answer? His answer is, where do you find those prophesied, John? Oh, Isaiah. That's right. Isaiah said the Messiah would also do this. And so Jesus points to the fulfillment of messianic prophecy that he is fulfilling. And what's really interesting is that he doesn't tell John He does not give John an explanation of all of the other prophecies that he is not yet fulfilling. When Jesus gives John his answer, he says this, John, sweet John, my cousin John, do you know what I'm doing? Do you think that you could be wrong about who I am? No. You were right. But what's interesting, what's interesting is that he refuses to answer why. He refuses to give John perhaps the answer he wanted. And instead, all he says is, there can be no doubt I am fulfilling messianic prophecy. He will not justify himself to John. He doesn't say, well, that was my first coming. I'm going to do that stuff in the second coming and just don't worry about that. Don't worry, John. It'll be okay. He forces John to choose whether or not he will bow to his authority. He forces John to choose whether or not he's going to bow to his authority or not. Isaiah 45, 9. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? And your work has no handles. Jesus is saying, John, you are a pot know your place, know your place, but he is so gentle with John, so gentle, go tell John what you see, you know that I am the Messiah, but don't ask about the times, that same response, Jesus's disciples later on, after the resurrection, what is it, the first thing off of their lips in Acts chapter 1, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now? Now is it time? Because they did not understand the timing of God. And even today, we ask in some sense, Lord, is it now? Is it soon? And we pray with John, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly, John the Apostle. We want him to come now, and there is a legitimate reason or a legitimate question why not yet but the wrong way to ask that is you must tell me you must tell me why not yet and we're going to see those two divisions in our next section oh before we get to that look at verse 33 23 This is is so critical in understanding Jesus' claim to authority. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So what he tells John is, if you want blessing, don't be offended by me. That's it. So the whole world is divided into two categories. Those who are not offended by Jesus and those who are offended by Jesus. And Jesus says, John, you are on the precipice potentially anyway, of being offended by the fact that I haven't fulfilled the prophecies in the way that you expected. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. But on the other hand, we have all of the Pharisees who we're going to hear from in just a minute. We have all of the Pharisees who say what? Oh, I know the scripture. You're not doing what the scripture says and so I know that you're wrong. And who do they put in place of the judge and of, of, of God. They put themselves in the place of God. And so Jesus says, blessed are those who are not offended by me. Those are our choices. Bow before the Lord, our maker, and be blessed. Or reject him, be offended by him, insist on your own righteousness and understanding, and be swept away. What a claim for Jesus to make. Blessed is everyone who is not offended by me. Now, the disciples take this message and they go back to John in verse 24. And then Jesus turns to the crowd and he begins to discuss John. He begins to teach about John. And let's look at what Jesus says There are two realities Jesus points to. One is that John is great. John's greatness is the first reality. John's greatness. And the second is John's insignificance. So number one and number two, John's greatness and John's insignificance. As you look at John the Baptist, Jesus says, "What did you go out into the wilderness to see? You didn't go out to see a reed shaken in the wind. You don't go out into the wilderness to do that. And you didn't go out into the wilderness to see a guy dressed in knight's nice clothing. You know where to find those guys. They're in the palaces. So what is it that you went out to the wilderness to see? Now understand the wilderness is like a desert. It's just like a desert. Rocks and sand and small little shrubs and no shade and lots of heat. People don't go out into the wilderness unless they have something important to see. What was it that they went out to see? They went out to see a prophet. And Jesus says, not just a prophet, but more than a prophet This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. And so who is John? Not just any prophet. He is the prophet, the messenger who would prepare the way for the Lord. In verse 28, I tell you among those born of women, none is greater than John. Now I don't think I could be wrong, but I don't think that that's a statement about John in his magnificence. I don't think this is a statement about John's righteousness, the extent of or the quality of his ministry. It's fundamentally about his relationship to the Messiah, his proximity to God. And the reason I say that is because the next sentence, yet... The one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. We are not greater than John in the quality or content or expanse of our ministry. Jesus is looking at greatness from a different perspective. So, John's greatness is established because he is the one who will come to prepare the way for the Lord. He is the one who ushers in the presence of the living God. It is him who announces that God is here. No prophet ever had such a privileged position. He is the greatest. But look at this magnificent statement. And do you believe it? Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now, I don't think anyone in this room would claim to be greater than John the Baptist. I don't think anyone would say, I'm more pure, more holy, more righteous than John the Baptist. But in what sense are we all greater than he? Well, if John's greatness comes from his proximity to God, his proximity to the Messiah, what has the Messiah done for us? And what is our proximity to him, this is this is breathtaking. John got to come and announce the coming of the Messiah. He got to tell you he's about to show up. He got to say, "Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world." But what does Jesus tell his disciples? If I go away, it's better for you because I will send the helper who will not just be with you he will be in you now look 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 with me at second corinthians chapter 3 and i've given you a few other references that indicate the same thing but look at second corinthians 7 i'm sorry 3 verse 7 and look at what paul says we're talking about greatness. We're talking about glory. <coughs> Verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 3. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more Glory. Look at verse 11. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. John prophesied. John spoke of the Messiah in closest proximity to the Lord God more than any other prophet. But do you know that the least of us has the Holy Spirit in him? And beholds Christ, not with a veil, but with an unveiled face. Do you think John had a veil? I think he did. I think he did. Because the disciples had a veil. And it, what, do you remember the disciples on the road to Emmaus? When the resurrected Christ appears to them? Do you remember what happened? They didn't know who it was and they didn't understand what was going on, and Jesus began to teach them from the Old Testament. At the end of it, they said, didn't our hearts burn within us as he spoke? Why? Because their eyes were opened, and Jesus taught them who he was. 1 Corinthians 3. That was 2 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 3. Let me just read one verse for you. Verse 17 or 16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? So the message that Jesus gives to the crowd is John's greater than any other man. But as great as he is, as close as he is to the living God, every, even the least, every member of the kingdom is greater, closer to God than John. That's breathtaking. Do you you realize that? Do we live our lives that way? Knowing that God's spirit dwells in us, that we are temples of the living God, or do we cower as we sang? Do we tremble at the word of Satan? One little word shall fell him. We don't have to tremble for him. We tremble for the Lord. That's the reality of John's ministry. He is both the greatest and yet he is insignificant, relatively speaking. Compared to those in the kingdom, John is less than the least. What about the result of his ministry? Look at uh, Luke 7 again, back to Luke. Luke tells us what happens after Jesus says this. Again, you're going to see the division of the people. Verse 29. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. And you remember what Jesus said? Blessed is all, or, blessed are all who are not offended by me. Were the people and the tax collectors offended by him? They heard his message, and what did they say? God is just. But the Pharisees and the lawyers, rejected the purpose of God for themselves. Why? Not having been baptized by him, by John. So what Luke tells us is that the whole crowd is divided by that same criteria. Do you bow to Jesus Christ and submit to his lordship? Or do you say, no, I have too many questions and I determine what's true and I don't think you meet my expectations. And who did that? The Pharisees. The Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by John. So what Luke tells us is that we too will be determined or our fate will be determined in the same way. Will you declare God just or will you condemn God and reject his purpose for your life? And we're going to see what a foolish thing to do that is in just a minute. Now let's turn to the third point. Jesus announces God's wisdom in verses 31 to 35, Jesus says, What shall I compare this people? They're the people of ge- this generation. And what are they like? This is offensive. It's offensive what he's about to say. But blessed is everyone who is not offended. What shall I compare the people of this generation and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace. And calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't weep. This isn't the innocent child that Jesus elsewhere refers to. This is the petulant child. The brat. Who insists that you do what he wants. And if you don't do what he wants, he's going to throw a fit. He's going to have a little temper tantrum. That's what this generation is like. Now, I don't think he's saying everyone in that generation, everyone who lived at that time is like that because just prior we saw that the, the tax collectors and the people justified God. They declared God just. But he's saying the lawyers and the Pharisees, the leaders of that generation, are like a bunch of petulant children. The wisdom of man is childish, petulant. The wisdom of man is childish, petulant. 1 Corinthians 1, 18, I think you'll understand. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Where is the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? So here's the scene. Man in his wisdom says, I don't understand. Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect another? And there's two answers to that question. One is to bow before the Lord and accept his word. What is the other the Pharisees who reject the purpose of God for their lives. And so all of us stand before the living God and we will either be like the petulant children or we will be like the tax collectors who praise God and declare him just. Look at why they reject John and we'll see how foolish they are. Verse 33, John the Baptist Has come eating no bread and drinking no wine and you say he has a demon we reject you John because you don't eat and you don't drink and Jesus we reject you because You do eat and you do drink Their argument self-contradictory You are not being reasonable This does not come from truth. This does not come from a desire to have knowledge. This comes from your own self-righteousness. You have already determined that God is not just. You already hate Him. And therefore, when He comes to you, your response is, no matter what form it comes in, no. I reject it. I reject it. And so John, the greatest man who ever lived, what? We No, throw him out. He doesn't eat and he doesn't drink. He must have a demon. And Jesus comes and he eats and he drinks. And they say, nope, throw him out. He eats and he drinks. The basis of their condemnation is their own righteousness. They rejected God's plan or purpose for their life. What does that tell you? On what basis will you reject God's purpose for your life? If you say, I know God's purpose and mine's better, I know God's plan and mine's better, what do you claim about yourself? You claim that you are superior to God. And so no matter what happens, you will justify yourself based on your own righteousness. I know what's true. I can recognize truth. I have the special glasses to see what's true and what's not and this doesn't meet my criteria. Who's the judge? Who stands in judgment in that scenario? The man who has put himself there. But the rest, who declare God just, they say, I don't understand everything. I don't have an answer to every question. I don't know why this and why that. But I know this that God is my maker and my creator and I will give thanks and bow before him. The unbeliever and righteous unrighteousness suppresses the truth about God. God showed it to him and his responses, no thanks, and he suppresses the truth. But those to whom the Lord has given eyes to see, they hear the truth and they receive it and they rejoice in it not because of their own righteousness, but because of God's goodness, greatness, and glory. So number two, uh, John is rejected because he does not eat or drink. Number three, Jesus is rejected because he does eat and drink. And then the final point, which we'll close on, the wisdom of God is established. Look at verse 35. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Wisdom is justified by all her children. You'll know. You'll know which group you are in. Are you with the Pharisees who condemn God and reject his purpose for yourself? Or will you be with the tax collectors, the sinners, all the people who say God is just? Which group will you be in? Will you know that wisdom is always justified by its children? What is he saying? What is he saying? You can tell the wisdom by what it bears, by the result that it comes to. What is the result of the rebellious, petulant children? What have they done? They have rejected the plan or the purpose of God and they have made themselves God. They've put them in the judgment seat. What will be their outcome? Well, what do they do? I reject John because he doesn't eat or drink. I reject Jesus because he does eat and drink. What have they done? They've contradicted themselves. They've contradicted themselves. And so the rebellious children condemn themselves and the submissive children glorify God. They glorify God. I want to read... For you, John chapter 9, just marvel at this. Brings up so many different passages. But listen to this, John 9, 39. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. As we come before God, if we claim to see We see so well that we can reject or accept God's law, God's plan or purpose. We claim we see what happens to us. We become blind. But if we recognize our own blindness relative to God's, then we will see. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you claim we see, your guilt remains. So God's authority is established through John the Baptist. John asks a question, and Jesus places to him this statement, if you will insist on understanding, you will be offended by me, and you will be rejected. But he knows John won't, and so he says, blessed is everyone who forgives or or who is not offended. And then Luke tells us all of the people are divided. One group, the tax collectors and the people, who hear what Jesus says and they justify God. And then the Pharisees and lawyers say, I don't want God's plan for my life. I know better than God does. And they reject Him. God's wisdom is justified by His children. God's wisdom is justified in the outcome of both the wicked and the and the righteous. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have hidden these things from the wise, and you have revealed them to babes. I thank you for John's attitude, so like a babe, coming to the Lord with a question, a doubt. He recognizes, he does not understand, he's confused. And thank you for your patience with him and with us as we humbly ask for clarification, as we humbly ask for help. And I pray, Lord, that that would be our attitude, not like that of the Pharisees, who already know what's right, already think they know what's right, before they even come. Give us hearts that bow before the Lord, and may we be justified, and justify your wisdom as we follow you. In Christ's name I pray, amen. And let me close with Ephesians chapter 2. And then I'll dismiss you. Actually, 3. That's what I want. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You're dismissed.